0: are entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats trying to get a resolution together to oppose Trump's national emergency declaration. A lot of posturing from them. Will it mean anything? Also, Smollett's meltdown over his hoax continues. We've got updates for you on that and the possibility of a legal defense for him. And what does it mean to have a good job? And how can you make any job you have meaningful? It's all coming up later in the show. Buck Sexton. Mission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One all family. Make no mistake. America. You're your great. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Like I could speak for three hours without a phone call? Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now you see every
1: single day that President Trump is trying to undermine our Constitution? I thought an emergency was floods in Iowa, okay? I thought that an emergency uh, was wildfires in Colorado or a hurricane in Florida. But he has put that on its head. I don't think it's going to be found constitutional, uh, but that's the kind of games that he is playing with our Constitution.
0: Will you definitively veto that resolution that was introduced today that would block your national emergency if it passes? On the wall? Yes. Will I veto it? 100%. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, my friends. Great to have you here with me on Friday. So the Democrats are uh, trying to do their usual maneuvering. Um, they're trying to uh, figure out some way to... Uh, make the president look bad on this declaration of national emergency because they won't really, they can't stop the declaration. The president has the right to declare. But what they're going to do is try to make it look bad and and fight against it. And then legally there will be a challenge in the courts the moment funding is moved and and they start trying to use it at the wall. So, um, you know, you have... Emergency powers have been invoked, I believe, under this statute since the 70s. Fifty-nine national emergencies have been declared. Thirty-one of them have been renewed each year. So uh, you've got things like the, you know, this. This is all just, just from a quick Google search. You see this stuff. Um, you have things that range from suspending all laws regulating chemical biological weapons. Uh, Suspending any clear air act implementation, authorizing, constructing military projects, using existing defense appropriations for construction, draft drafting retired Coast Guard officers. I mean, a lot of stuff. um, From emergency powers here stretching back for a long time, but you'll notice that, you know, how much of that is really an emergency or, you know, where where's the emergency there? Where's the house on fire there? We started off with Klobuchar, best known for being unknown except for when she throws things at members of her staff and treats them horribly. Um, as an aside, I I am unable to, and I, I shouldn't I shouldn't start with this, but I have it on very good authority that at some point you will hear that Kirsten Gillibrand is not only a phony, but is a very nasty person. I have I have an anecdote that is amazing uh to show that one she's a phony and she's really mean just like klobuchar uh but I can't tell it because the person it's a the person who told me about it is a democrat and I am I am for now sworn to secrecy and until that person is willing to come forward and share the story about his or her interactions with Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, as a Democrat, mind you, I can't, you know, I can't because that person, if they won't back up my, oh, but I want to because she's such a phony and she's a terrible, terrible person from what I understand. Uh, But Klobuchar also really nasty. Look at all these really mean, really mean elected Democrats. Not not a surprise, is it? You know, I, I think there are Republicans that are in elected office that are not my cup of tea, but most of the ones that I come across are pretty nice people. Most of the ones that I've dealt with uh, are. Rand Paul is chill. I would not call him warm and fuzzy. However, he can be a little, he can be a little prickly. Uh, but you know, by and large, most of the Republicans that I've dealt with in the Senate and and in the House are, are pretty are pretty nice. Uh, I think I'm actually having I'm doing a buck in a bar segment soon with. Um, congressman duffy i believe i think that that's gonna happen so i got i got things i got things going on things going on i'll tell you about them all right but back to the trump national emergency situation here so they're hoping to put this in front of them so he has to veto it so essentially it'll be the uh congress disagreeing with the president on this issue but you know what's funny about about an executive uh, executive authority is that so what Unless they're going to repeal the law that gives him the authority, this is just like their opinion, man. And ultimately, I think that it looks bad for Congress to be out there making the case, the American people, that what's going on in the southern border is not an emergency. How could it not be an emergency? You're on track for half a million people coming into the country falsely claiming asylum, abusing our system, abusing the... Uh, generous and kind nature of the American people for their own purposes. These are economic migrants, and they're showing up with families because they know they're more likely to be in this country if they show up as a family. And you have the drugs pouring in. There's there's meth pouring into the country, and and in, in in levels that are uh, that are mind blowing. In fact, I believe meth now they're dropping the price of meth. The cartels are, are dropping methamphetamine prices just so they can maintain some of the markets they have, even if they're selling some of it at a loss based on their, you know, importation, illegal importation fees. So there are other drugs that they're trying to pile into the country other than just fentanyl and, and, and the opioids that have been killing over 70,000 Americans a year now. That's not an, that's not an emergency? You know, that doesn't matter. Think about the communities across the country where these drugs are flooding in. We're supposed to believe that that doesn't qualify for an executive action like this. I, I really, you know, this is it. If, if we can't win this argument on, uh, if we can't win this argument on the border under the Trump administration, we're never going to win this argument. It, it, it turns into something similar to what we have with the national debt which is where there's really only one side of this that's right, but it's a long-term structural, strategic, foundational issue that, you know, to deal with it now is painful. So much more popular to procrastinate, say it's not a big deal. We are heading toward a, a de facto open border state, and if we don't establish secure borders under the trump administration it's never going to happen in fact not only will they will not be secure we're just going to have a policy where people can come and go you know essentially anyone who can get here can stay and you know you talk about things like sovereignty uh the cohesion of the polity of the political unit you know what what is a country we can take this down to a very distill this down to its essence a country is an idea you know we're americans because of the culture and the and the the people around us and the ideology of this country that we buy into that we believe is is important to us as as individuals and as a nation which is a group as a group as well and you know, you can always make the case, well, why, why can't you be a citizen of any country? It's not fair. Why can't you just pick? The whole nation-state system is based on the, largely based on the accident of birth. It's unfair. It's inherently unfair. So if fairness is going to be the governing standard for who gets to stay and who doesn't get to stay, and it's a fairness not based on the law but based on what feels good to people, you're an open-border state. I, I don't want to tell anybody you're not allowed to be here in America. I mean, well, criminals, obviously, but I, I don't want to look Honduran migrants in the eye. I don't want to look some 22-year-old woman who arrives, you know, with, with her with her two kids under the age of 10 and says, you know, all I want to do is be in America. I don't want to look at her and say, sorry, you got to go. That That's not going to feel good. But if you look at what it means, if, if our law enforcement is, I mean, then again, I also don't want to, you know, arrest people for, simple drug possession. There's a lot of things I don't want to do. If our law enforcement, though, isn't able to tell that woman who's not legally allowed to be in the country, I'm sorry, you you know, we're going to make sure you're safe and, and take care of you and get you medical care, but you got to go, then everyone can come and stay. And if everyone can come and stay, we don't really have a country anymore. We have a kind of economic opportunity zone that has no particular character or ethos or or sustainable version of itself. It just will be in a constant flux of well, you know we you know and, and, and you look at the numbers and look at how countries change over time and there can be profound shifts, profound shifts. I, I think that, that a lot of Americans have this idea that the immigration that we're dealing with now is similar to immigration wave in the past and that's just nonsense by the percentages. Uh, it's, we've never had anything like this. Um, we've never had a larger uh, illegal alien population in the country. We've also never had a larger legal immigrant population. And I would just note that while I'm in favor of, le- of legal immigrants and, and we welcome legal immigrants into our American family, there's an assimilation process that has to happen there too. M- maybe this is, you know, getting too deep into the issue, but there is a limit to how many legal immigrants you'd want to bring in as well. You know, and and for people that that sounds that sounds uh, crazy to, Okay, well let's let's assume that. Well, let's talk about a, a smaller country, right? Let, let's take it out of the context of America for a second. If if the Netherlands allowed eight million Iraqis to immigrate to the Netherlands, is the Netherlands still the Netherlands? No, it is not. It is something else, right? It would it would overwhelm the character and the uh, the legal and cultural foundations of that country. It would overwhelm the assimilation system. I'm talking about a legal immigration wave. Now, I don't think we're quite there uh, with legal immigration year to year, but we're not far off either. I mean, I, I do think that a million a year is a pretty is a pretty high number. It is a lot of people to bring into a country to go through the assimilation process, especially when you have a lot of them are being brought here through chain migration because of family connections. Now, the system is the system, so I have no problem with anybody who's going through the system legally. But we also, as a country, and those people who are legal immigrants who become citizens of the country, they get to be part of this conversation, too. We get to have a discussion as a nation about, well, how many how many legal immigrants do we really want to take in? You know, and, and, and I understand that for people, that their their primary political motivation is to feel good about themselves and to take the position of the greatest generosity and never have to say no to people and just want to see the good in people and not look at how things can go wrong, why wouldn't you want to be open borders? You know, and this is why I, I try to ask Democrats questions like, why, why, why is illegal immigration bad? From a Democrat perspective, why is li- illegal immigration bad? And the answer is they don't think it is. There's no, and you'll never get them to say, well, if you have a country of 320 million uh, Americans and you were to allow the you know importation of uh, the immigration of you know 10 million hondurans which is basically the population of honduras because their country is so crappy uh, does that change i mean it's certainly going to change the political direction of the country it's going to change the, you know th- this is what we have to look at and and do people when they come in in large enough numbers does that affect their desire to assimilate when they're here these are all these are all serious discussions about the future of the country and as it is affected by immigration but it's so much easier to just say we're a nation of immigrants you know they're doing the jobs Americans won't do just let people in illegal immigrants are more American than Americans all this stuff and this is where the Democrats have gone with this so uh, Trump is Trump is right about securing the border I I don't know if he's going to win this fight I don't know if he's going to win this fight. We, it might be that the Democrats may have their long-term strategy to change the demographics of this country such that there's a permanent left-of-center majority for the Democratic Party and that enough Republicans have been bought and paid for on the immigration issue that they won't stand for the law. We, may, I don't know. It's kind of a bummer thing to tell you on a Friday, but we may be too late on this issue. I don't know if anybody's going to get it done, if Trump can't get it done. So I, I hope that he's able to prevail on this one in the courts and in public opinion in 2020. Uh, but there are some concerning signs here. All right, we got to roll into a quick break. I will be back with you with so much more. We got to talk about the Smollett, Smollett, Monsieur Smollett, that whole situation. Stay with me. What do you stand on some form of reparations for
1: black people? Well, look, I think that we have got to address that. Um, again, it's back to the inequities there through, you know, Look, America has a history of two hundred years of slavery. Mm-hmm. We had Jim Crow. We've got to recognize, back to that earlier point, people aren't starting out on the same base in terms of their ability to succeed, and so we have got to to recognize that and give people the a lift up. We have a history of racism in America.
0: So you are for some type of yes, I am. Okay. yes, I am. That's Kamala Harris, prime, uh, top-tier candidate from the Democrats for the presidency so far. A lot of establishment folks excited about her candidacy. You know, there's definitely a buzz around her saying that she is in favor of reparations. I do not... Now, I could be wrong here. So one of you could, could point this out. I do not remember hearing a president... In recent memory, any any Democrat presidential candidate that I can think of, again, this is just off the top of my head, that was in favor, openly in favor of reparations for slavery, the federal government stepping in with reparations. And I would be very curious to know what that would look like. What is she really talking about here? We already have affirmative action. Affirmative action is running into some problems now because of the discriminatory effect against Asians that affirmative action uh, has resulted in, uh, and affirmative action has been, has been extended way beyond, uh, uh African Americans to Latinos, to native Americans, to, uh, transgender individuals, to LGBT community. I mean, affirmative action is now everything that's not a, an, uh, essentially an Asian or a, you know, white male. So that's, that's where affirmative action has gone. But I also noted in this, and that was, I think, an interview on this radio show, the Breakfast Club. Um, but I, she she mentioned this: the in inequities. You remember this? This is important. I brought this up, I think, yesterday here on the show. Not inequalities. The you, know, you have to pay attention to the words that leftists use: inequities. Inequality is a is the way it is treated in public policy discussions is about the law right are you equal in the law equal is rights equal is you know you, you are treated the same way by the state inequity inequity is the absence of fair ends not fair process but fair ends fair results Do you have the same that what somebody else has? Forget about the decisions you've made. Forget about the work you've done. Forget about your skills and abilities. Do you have the same that somebody else has? Oh, you don't? That's inequity in the eyes of the left. And if you are in a protected category, you should not have to suffer inequity. And in fact, the state should have to come in to give you the same ends, the same results and benefits that somebody else has because of your identity group. This is going to, you're going to see more of this. Pay attention to that term, inequity versus inequality. The left is going to be all about this.
1: Somebody tweeted yesterday or the day before, and I thought it made a lot of sense. So this is a police department um, that has had some issues. I think there are issues with the Chicago Police Department uh, as a general proposition, whether or not they are alleged to have treated people of color fairly, whether or not they are uh, capable of doing an investigation without any
0: um, difficult issues arising. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Smollett's attorneys there, Garagos and Benjamin Broffman, are starting to do the whole, well, maybe Chicago PD is racist. Maybe maybe that's really the problem here. I, I mean, this guy, if, if the maximum he can serve is three years, I think he should get three years. You really got to make an example of this idiot. What he did is disgusting. It's wrong. And that he's got his attorneys out there now saying, yeah, maybe Chicago Police Department's racist. I'm sorry. They gave this guy... This utter moron, Jussie Small, this spoiled brat, by the way, who was upset that he didn't get paid more money for the show he was on. They gave him more than the benefit of the doubt. They gave him every opportunity to not just explain his side of the story, but to come clean. He did neither of those things. And now here we are. Uh, it's It's appalling. Ed Davis, the former Boston Police Commissioner, saw this for what it is. Play six.
1: When defense attorneys don't have any facts, they go to process. And uh, they're trying to throw enough smoke up there. To establish reasonable doubt in the minds of the prospective jurors that's what this is all about but you know ed ed uh described this very well yesterday he called it a despicable crime and uh when you hear his presentation and the presentation of the state's attorney there's there's almost an embarrassment of of evidence here uh against smollett
0: couldn't be any more obvious and and i think it's re- it's just reprehensible that lawyers are going out there now and and are just are essentially saying Chicago, Chicago is racist. The country's racist. Chicago police are racist. If that defense would work for Smollett, then what you're really or Smollett, then what you're really saying is that no African-American in Chicago could be convicted of any crime because the police department is just so racist that even when the evidence is overwhelming. As we already know, it is. I mean, this this guy, it could not be more obvious that this is a hoax and more clear that this is a hoax. If he gave us a signed confession with videotape, then maybe it'd be more obvious. But still, I'm sure lawyers would say he was coerced. He was coerced into his confession at this point. Some lawyers are great. Some lawyers, man, no shame. No shame at all. You know, the the guy should be punished. I, I saw today that there was some beginnings of a narrative that, oh, maybe he's got a drug problem or something. I'm sorry. No. Let, let's not let's not do that one now, either. I mean, this is these are all just desperation maneuvers. These are all these are all Hail Marys to avoid accountability. And, uh, you know, it, it's just not, it's, I hope I was going to say it's not going to work. I hope none of this works. But, you know, with our justice system, sometimes sometimes things can be uh, surprisingly illogical and unfair. Uh, he should serve time. He should spend some time in a, in a prison cell. Uh, the Dersh, the Dersh weighed on this one. And I, I think the Dersh has got this one correct. Play four. Uh, if the facts are as the police say they are, if actually payments were made and a plan was hacked to put a rope around the neck and a police report was filed, then we have a potential for a serious a crime. I think people who make false reports ought to go to jail. I think, you know, in the Bible, if you falsely accuse somebody, you get the penalty that the person would have gotten had the accusation been true. So if, in fact, these people had attacked him in this racist way and put a noose around his neck, they would have gotten some years in jail. If you're going to follow the Bible, this guy ought to get the same penalty that he falsely accused other people of getting totally agree with the Dersh on this. And let me also say that we have been treated to lecture after lecture from partisans in the media and in the Democratic Party about how lying to the system destroys the system. So even a relatively minor lie in the course of a federal investigation. Oh, I don't know, like the Mueller probe, for example, even a relatively minor lie is unacceptable because that lie makes the work of the entire system harder. And so people have to be held accountable for this. And that there has to be uh, there have to be consequences for this. Right. Well, if that's the case for lying, false accusation is just a form of lying. It's no different. You know, if if you sit there and say, I never spoke to Putin and you did speak to Putin and they're going to throw you in prison for that. Saying, well, I didn't speak to Putin, but this other guy did, and he should go to jail for that, and he didn't. That's just another form of lying. A false report is an official lie that hurts the system. So if you're somebody who thinks that George Papadopoulos should have gone to prison, you better darn well think that Jussie Smollett should go to prison, or else you're going to have some explaining to do, as far as I am concerned with all of this. um. It's uh, amazing. Oh, wait. Smollett's statement that we have that? All right. We have Smollett's statement to the prosecution here. Play clip two.
1: Smollett stated that he wanted them to appear to attack him. Defendant Smollett also stated he wanted the brothers to catch his attention by calling him an Empire F, Empire N. Defendant Smollett also included that he wanted Ola to place a rope around his neck. Pour gasoline on him and yell, "This is mega country."
0: Astonishing, isn't it? Astonishing. Um, but yet here, here we are with it. Oh, and by the way, CNN, of course, trying to cover for uh, CNN and MSNBC trying to cover for him. Play clip one. We are going to see um, conservative media probably play this up a bit. Sean Hannity's going to eat Jesse Smollett's lunch. Every single second, Tucker Carlson is going to eat Jussie Smollett's lunch. Every single second, president the, the president States. of the United States That's is right. going to eat his lunch. Eat his lunch, huh? Eat his lunch every single second. Well, doesn't that isn't that kind of deserving? Isn't that kind of deserving? Isn't that uh, isn't that a fair thing for? Uh, for this to turn into i mean you know why was i we talked about this yesterday why was i able to know that everything was fine why was i able to know that there was really no uh no truth in this story and all these different media companies the big media apparatus they, they couldn't figure it out oh republicans pounce is the story i see right oh they're being mean to, to, to jussie they're being mean to jussie no 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 i don't think so this is a guy who should go to prison. We called this one team right all along. So we do a little victory dance on that one. We've, we've known all along that that was the case. And we also now should expect there to be accountability in this whole process. We should expect that somebody who was willing to draw resources off of investigations of homicides in a city with a serious homicide problem uh, should not go unpunished and should not go unscathed. but. You know, the sad part about this is the media is not going to learn a thing. They're not going to change at all. And here's what I can tell you the next, and there will be one, the next big uh, hate crime hoax that comes along, the same script for the media will be in play. They won't change their coverage, they won't be more skeptical. And it's because that ultimately they really think that they did this the right way, even though they were totally wrong. They think the mainstream media believes when it comes to hate crime hoaxes, even when they're wrong, they're still right because they've raised awareness. we be right back. So a lot of people have talked about Smollett this week. One of the best and I to, I want to give you a good chunk of it. Charles Barkley is one of the more entertaining TV commentators around, period. You know, you don't always get great stuff from Charles, but you do get a lot of a lot of gems. I mean, Charles Barkley comes up with stuff. I don't even really care about professional basketball very much. I used to watch it, but I don't have the time these days. But Charles Barkley is so amusing when he talks about professional basketball and not even just that, just just topics in general. That I will sometimes watch, uh, I will sometimes watch Charles Barkley on his panel on TNT just because I know he's so funny. The stuff that he said about Smollett today, though, I because we, we got the we got Friday coming up here, we got a weekend. I I just figured it'd be fun to share some of this with you. Here is what Charles Barkley said about this play eighteen.
1: Jussie, <laughs> you wasted all that damn time and money. You, you know what you should have did? What's that? Just went up in Leonisa's neighborhood. Could <laughs> have solved all your bro. problems. is <laughs> one over there that you would say has no chance of happening. Um two black guys beat the black guy up. And have uh, a black guy. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, oh, oh. I'm
0: sorry, speaking <laughs> out loud. I think, oh. That's uh, it's not on here, man.
1: What kind of hat's they had on, Chuck? Magus. Magus.
0: Magus hat. All right. I think that's probably. I think that's
1: probably it. Okay. The Lakers will not make the playoffs. The Kings will is the latest edition. Go ahead, Kenny. I can't Chuck, believe you, Chuck. He you paying with cash. Chuckster. You pay with Chuckster. Cash he paid with cash. He wrote him a check. Chuck. America. Let me just tell you something. What's that? Do not commit crimes with checks. If you're gonna break the law, do not write. A check? Cause you're writing a check that what? <laughs> hey, get cash, <the> man! <laughs> oh, stop! Literally. $1, oh. <laughs> so, okay, I one more question to ask. You. Do you buy the face mask, the rope, and the thing in the same store? No. <laughs> you think they put that on a receipt? Face mask, rope, bleach. In the store? <laughs> oh, the same store. You wouldn't even go to three different stores. <laughs>
0: So they're obviously having some fun there on the set of TNT with Charles Barkley, just really going after the Smollett thing. But I think, I think you have to, man. I don't think that this is a situation where we should all pretend like this isn't completely preposterous, that what he did isn't absolutely ridiculous, uh, you know, and, and, and damaging and wrong, but also so stupid. This is real real buffoon kind of stuff. I mean, it's really astonishingly dumb. I mean, writing a check, buying the stuff from the store on video, bringing in two other guys to be a part of this, and all of it. It just makes no sense. It's somebody who's clearly not very smart, um, and yet there are some people out there, believe believe it or not, Believe it or not, there are some people out there who aren't yet convinced, aren't yet entirely convinced, if, in fact, this guy, Smollett, did uh, did this whole thing. Play clip seven here. Maxine Waters weighs in.
1: Uh, it, I don't think we can at this point. It makes sense of it. Uh, there's still some questions that we have, some answers that have to be given. He's a friend. Uh, he was at my office we marched in the pride raid together he introduced me at uh, black girls rock and so I, i i i believed him uh when i heard about it uh i still don't know all of the details i'm waiting for the final results of all of this if in fact it's a hoax of course i would be disappointed but i'm just hopeful uh that whatever goes on and if he finds that he's in trouble, that his life will be changed, then he has to redo it all over again.
0: How much more does she need in terms of facts? I'm just wondering what the facts from. Does she not believe the Chicago Police Department? Does she not believe Eddie Johnson, the CPD superintendent who's speaking yesterday? I mean, this is what this is what Eddie Johnson said yesterday. Play three. Smollett paid $3,500 to stage this
1: attack and drag Chicago's reputation through the mud in the process. And why? This stunt was orchestrated by Smollett because he was dissatisfied with his salary. So he concocted a story about being attacked.
0: Is there any part of that that Maxine Waters thinks is a lie? Uh, is is there some is there some aspect of this that she? Let's all be very clear. The chance that the Chicago Police Department would come out and say these things about a a, a gay African American actor who claimed to have been attacked, the the fact that they're coming out to say that, that this is a hoax, they are, to, they have this thing as airtight as you could have anything, as airtight as you could have anything. Uh, So that's let's start with that. But if he does face charges, there are some people who are saying, you know, crazier things have happened. And you start to think about some cases that have come up. This is uh, Sonny Hostin on on The View 19.
1: He is going to mount a vigorous defense, and he's made it very clear that Jussie is still entitled to a presumption of innocence. And I think we do need to remember that. For the police department to come out and lay this all out, we have to still be skeptical. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, did everybody think Casey Anthony was going to be found guilty? Yes. Did everybody think OJ was going to be found guilty? Yes. And mm-hmm. those people were not
0: found guilty. She's, she's confusing... Analysis of the news with the legal process a little bit there, by the way. uh, He's not going to mount a vigorous defense. If he he goes to trial, he's going to lose. He's going to take a plea bargain. He's not going to mount a... No, if they charge him, he's going to plead it out. No way he's going to mount a vigorous defense. Uh, But to her point about Casey, Anthony, and OJ, yeah, I mean, there are people that get away with crimes all the time, unfortunately. I see that R. Kelly today was charged with 10 counts of some kind of sexual misconduct. I don't know exactly what it is. 10, R. Kelly's 10 counts of sexual misconduct. R. Kelly was charged, and the, the documentary on him, I think it's on Lifetime that I've watched. It's a series of uh, like six or seven episodes. It's very good and disturbing. R. Kelly was prosecuted for underage sex and making child pornography. He was. They had a video of him... With the underage girl. They showed it to the jury. And R. Kelly said it might be his brother. That it wasn't him in the video. And he was found. Not guilty. How could a jury be so stupid? I don't know. The OJ jury. I don't. Th- I think the OJ jury always knew that he did it. They just thought that this was some. Getting back at. Uh, uh, getting back at. You know at the racist oppressors in this country. Um, no one. No one with you know, uh, a functioning brain thought that O.J. didn't do it. So is there a chance that Smollett would get off? Well, maybe, but he's also, he's not some hero to any community. I mean, this is all, the whole thing is just, is just grotesque, right? So I think he's going, I think he's going to the slammer if, if he tries to fight this thing. Global Verification Network, the only dual certified veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company out there. Background checks are very important for every business, no matter what size your business. If you've got a startup, if you're an entrepreneur, you're just bringing in a few people. Well, they're obviously critical employees. But if you're a big company and you're working in the HR department, you know, you got to make sure that your background checks are done quickly and efficiently and correctly. That's where Global Verification Network comes in. A lot of the people in this space will outsource the work to companies overseas they don't really have control over the information the servers that they're using are overseas as well forget all that go with a veteran owned and operated company that is all about the states here in america all right call 877-695-1179 again 877-695-1179 or Go to MyGVN.com. Again, that's MyGVN.com. At some point, I guess I'll be talking about it, but you know the nice part? There was no collusion. There was no obstruction. There was no anything. So that's the nice part. There was no phone calls, no nothing. We have a, uh, I won a race. You know why I won the race? Because I was a better candidate than she was and had nothing to do with Russia. And everybody knows it's a hoax. It's one of the greatest hoaxes ever perpetrated on this country. So I look forward to seeing the report. If it's an honest report, it will say that. If it's not an honest report, it won't. Yeah, go ahead. We may in fact be in the last days of Mullermania. Mania. I could do some cool. We could do some cool theme music for Mania. I, I am so happy for, well, at least this reason, and maybe this is a little bit selfish, but I just don't want to have to talk about this case anymore. It's so obviously stupid. It's such a political hatchet job. It has been from the start. The people involved are unseemly. They're dishonest. They're bad people. They've tried to undo the results of a democratic election you know, and and I just feel like we've talked this thing to death. The whole country has. I mean, you you turn on CNN on most nights there's a Russia story and a lot of nights. And this is for the last two years. A lot of nights they lead with a Russia story and they bring people on who go, well, you know, we don't know yet and we don't know yet. And all this. It was the speculation Olympics for two years about, well, maybe maybe Mueller's got this up his sleeve and maybe. Now, all of a sudden, they're starting to try to manage expectations a bit. Now now they're changing the, the whole tone, the whole vibe of the Mueller probe. And our friend Kim Strassel, who you know is a, a frequent uh, visitor here on the show, wrote a great piece, Shifting, S-C-H-I-F-F-T-I-N-G, to Phase Two of Collusion, Conspiracy Theorists Look for Something New, Anticipating a Mueller Letdown. And let me just get Kim. Kim just nails it in this piece. Let me give you some of what she gets into here. Quote, there's been no more reliable regurgitator of fantastical Trump Russia collusion theories than Democratic Representative Adam Schiff. So when the House Intelligence Committee chairman sits down to describe a new phase of the Trump investigation, pay attention. These are the fever swamps into which we will descend after Robert Mueller's probe. The collusionists need a new phase as signs grow that the special counsel won't help realize their revelries of a Donald Trump takedown. They had said Mr. Mueller would provide all the answers. Now that it seems they won't like his answers, Democrats and media insist that any report will likely prove anticlimactic and inconclusive. This is merely the end of Chapter One, said Renato Mariotti, a CNN legal analyst. Mr. Schiff turned this week to a dependable scribe, The Washington Post, David Ignatius, to lay out the next chapter of The Penny Dreadful. By the way, a very good TV show on, on uh, Cinemax, I think, if you haven't seen it. Mr. Ignatius was the original conduit for the leak about former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn's conversations with a Russian ambassador. And the far-fetched claims that Mr. Flynn had violated the Logan Act of 1799, Mr. Schiff has now dictated to Mr. Ignatius a whole new collusion theory. Forget Carter Page, Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos, whoever. The real Trump Russia canoodling rests in Trump's finances. The future president was doing business with Russia and seeking Kremlin help. End quote, guys, these people are shameless, aren't they? I mean, Kim totally nails it. She's she's right. I mean, I've I've been saying this too, but this is this is where all of this is heading. We're just going to start to hear now about how we need Trump's tax returns. We need to know more about uh, about Trump's business dealings. And you see, this is just going to be a an investigation of Trump the person. That's what they are going to transition to. This is an investigation of Donald Trump. They're, you know, they can try to say it's about Russia collusion and everything else, but now it. I mean, if they're talking about his business dealings. What is that? If they didn't find collusion, as in Trump and Trump's campaign actively contacting and working with the Russians to help steer the election to Trump. If they didn't find that, then looking at Trump's finances can't be a part of that investigation, because obviously Trump's finances, as it affects the Russia collusion narrative, would have already been covered. It would have already been there if they had any evidence of this whatsoever. So now they have no evidence of collusion. What they're saying is, let's just turn Trump's finances upside down and then we'll find evidence of collusion. You know, this is uh, throw the throw the witch out in the lake, tie her down with stones. If she drowns, she's innocent. If she floats, she's a witch. Trump can't win. Trump can't win. Don't even get me started on that scary movie, The Witch. Been having nightmares. The movie's scare too scary, man. Too scary. Uh, but th- this is this is what we're dealing with now. These these people are the Democrats. They're little media allies, little media stooges. They're they're utterly shameless. I mean, Rachel Maddow has been doing these, and now we have this really interesting revelation that's going to blow your mind about Russia. Every night, you know, she takes a little pen out, she taps on the table, the whole shtick. I mean. I don't know who finds Rachel Maddow's show interesting. I really don't. It's just uh, it's just more people speculating about Russia night after night who don't know anything. There's no information. It's just speculation. It's, well, maybe, maybe, yes, no, kind of so. They have nothing to offer in terms of knowledge, in terms of actual transmission of useful information or real information. No, it all just becomes... The same old nonsense about how, well, if this happened, then maybe that happened, then maybe this other thing happened. You know, I can do to anybody. This is like when McCabe goes on TV and says Trump still could be a Russian asset. McCabe still could be a Russian asset. Can he prove to us that he's not a Russian asset? How do we know? Oh, let's investigate him. This is the essence of police state tactics. This is what happens in countries where there is no rule of law and where the people who have the ability to exercise judicial and prosecutorial discretion do not act in good faith. The, the bar for a counterintelligence investigation, as we've seen from McCabe and Comey and others, is essentially, we think maybe this thing could have happened, so we're going to start pulling people's phone calls and emails and surveilling them because of counterintelligence concerns. This is a massive abuse. This is an enormous scandal. And that the Democrats are just unwilling to see what is plainly staring all of us in the face here just goes to show that you can't trust these people with power. Their ideology, their party is morally and intellectually bankrupt. You don't want these people to be in charge. You do not want Democrats to be in a position to sick the IRS, the DOJ, the FBI people. Notice how, who has Trump sicked the prosecutorial arm of the government on? You know, you know, the Clintons used to have the IRS go after people. You know, the IRS went after conservatives under the Obama administration. Conservatives somehow, Republicans, this doesn't happen from our side. I wonder why that is. We don't weaponize the apparatus of the government the way the left does. You know, and and for, uh, for people who are going to say, well, what about the Clintons, Buck, and Whitewater? Uh, the, Clintons should have gone, the Clintons should have been criminally prosecuted. The Clintons actually broke the law. We all know they broke the law in a whole bunch of ways, both of them, more than once. So you know, that's, that's not a witch hunt. That's actually, yeah, you're, that's, that's just a hunt. That's finding illegal behavior. But this whole Mueller thing, it's, not, it's going to end next week. And Kim's right. Kim Strassel's right. Just means collusion chapter two begins. This is a woman who inflicted enormous risk on American soldiers, uh, on American citizens. She's a terrorist. She's not coming back. President Trump made clear uh, that she wasn't coming back. She's not a U.S. citizen. She is not entitled to U.S. citizenship. And she's not coming back to our country to pose a threat. Secretary of State is not messing around when talking about Hoda Muthana. This is the case, I believe we spoke to my friend uh, Rahim Kassam about this one earlier in the week. Uh, but this is the case of a woman who was a, I think, thrice married uh, ISIS bride. So she, she went off to join the Islamic State. Now, I, I, and there's a lot of details I want to get into. Let me start with this. Who sees the snuff videos, the, the horrific murder videos that are out there of um, the, the Islamic State torturing people, mutilating people, murdering people? Who sees that stuff and, and then says, I want to go join that group? Who sees that? um What kind of a person would want to go be a part of that and, and marry fighters for this? I mean, this woman—you know—she's a terrorist, folks. She is a terrorist. I know you know that, but we need to make sure we keep a a close a close eye here on the T word because there are some very interesting and shady and slimy figures that are emerging who all of a sudden are trying to make a case that you know, maybe she wasn't that bad or we should bring her back and she should have her day in court. Um, now, I, I think there are some legal issues here where, you know, it, it can go either way. I mean, in my opinion, if you wage war against your country, you should be able to have your citizenship stripped from you. This woman not only, not only joined the Islamic State in Syria, married multiple uh, ISIS men was a bride for them. Uh, she was tweeting out ISIS propaganda and encouraging people on behalf of the Islamic State and posting online on behalf of the Islamic State to kill Americans here at home, not, not just on the battlefield, here at home. She was one of the people who was encouraging, who you could say was was digitally conspiring with individuals to radicalize on their own here, to mow people down with cars, to to stab people, and just do all these disgusting, horrific terrorist things that we know the Islamic State has been doing. And now she's being held by Kurdish forces. She's in a refugee camp. She has a child, and she says she wants to come home. Um, she said, quote, I know I've ruined my future and my son's future, and I deeply regret it, and now people are referring to her as the ISIS bride. And there's going to be, I tell you this, the social justice left is going to start saying, oh, she was brainwashed and it wasn't her fault and and and, and that she should be allowed back in the country. The the Trump administration has just said, as you heard it there from the Secretary of State, she's not a citizen. Is uh, not a citizen. Quote, the State Department maintains that no such process is required as Muthana is not and never has been an American citizen. She stands outside of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of birthright citizenship, the government argues, because her father, who is now a naturalized citizen, was formerly a Yemeni diplomat under the jurisdiction of his home country. That's right, like in the Constitution, subject to the jurisdiction thereof. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Guidelines spe- specify an exception to birthright citizenship for children not born subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, as the 14th Amendment requires. She may have been born here, Pompeo said. She is not a U.S. citizen, nor is she entitled to U.S. citizenship. Muthana's lawyers, however, are indicating that her father was discharged from his diplomatic position by the time of her birth, by which point her mother had gained permanent residency status. When the government revoked the young woman's passport in January, it stated that she had was not a birthright citizen because her father's termination had not officially been documented until February 1995. So, you know, look, this is where you're going to get into uh, you know, if if the papers weren't signed in time, you know, I the law is the law, and if the, if your citizenship papers didn't go through, guess what? Not a citizen, sorry. And I hope that nobody's really going to lose too much sleep over this one. But, you know, the left, they see they see a Muslim minority, you know, Muslim minority female, and they are immediately trying to find ways to, if not openly take her side, certainly defend her, defend some aspects of her position. I saw the Council on Arab Islamic Relations. I I, I only see the council care, they call it the Council on Arab Islamic Relations uh i'm sorry council on american islamic relations pardon me i only see care though when it's like hey does anybody want to defend this terrorist and they're like yes we are from care we would like to defend the terrorists it's like whew. is that really the only the only time we get to hear from you guys or if somebody leaves a, a mean voicemail on an imam's you know phone message th- then we get to hear about it I, i'll never forget that i was in a. Uh, I was at CNN once and it was after one of the, I think it might have been after the Pulse nightclub shooting. I pretty, but I forget. I was over there analyzing so many terror incidents. I think it was the Pulse nightclub shooting. And they brought me on and and the segment before me was about the shooting, which had just happened maybe a couple of days before. And they wanted to talk to me about how, is this going to spur a rise in hate crimes because somebody left a mean voicemail on an imam's, uh, on an imam's answering machine at a, at a mosque somewhere i just remember thinking this is how cnn priorities work you have a terrible attack with dozens and dozens of gay men slaughtered while they're trying to just have a night out have a night of, of fun and, and enjoyment and uh, you know killed for the crime of, of trying to dance and listen to some music by this islamic state supporting psychopath Remember when the FBI redacted information from the transcript too? the Obama FBI, this, there have been some big, big signs out there that the FBI is not this, uh, team of crack gumshoes that uh, a lot of people would like to believe they were retract. They were retracting things or redacting things like I'm doing this in the name of the blank state. And I pray to blank that I will be a martyr. I mean, I think we could do the film. Remember that with the, uh, That was a real thing during the aftermath of Pulse nightclub shooting. But they immediately wanted to talk to me about, is there going to be a rise in hate crimes? And we're saying, you know, can we focus on the actual crime here? Can we actually talk about the terrorist act and not immediately switch this into like, well, like we don't want, you know, we don't want to talk about this hate crime, which is what it was. We want to talk about the possible hate crime against the Islamic community later on. And back to this uh, this woman who's trying to come back from the Islamic State. Uh, I'm sorry, you you joined the enemy. Y- you have no rights in this country, as far as I'm concerned. You're not a citizen. So, I mean, if the government if the government says you're not a citizen and you don't have citizenship, well, we're going to give her citizenship now. Uh, so, you know, she wasn't a citizen when she went there. She's not a citizen now, and I, I think that uh, the uh, the Trump administration's right on this one. Notice how, though, there'll be plenty of Democrats that say, oh, it's tyranny and it's terrible what Trump is doing because they just oppose Trump no matter what it is. It's one of the more remarkable tests of the left's delusion here is that no matter what the circumstances may be, you know, if Trump came out and said that he has managed to find a way that you could eat all the cheeseburgers you want, never gain a pound, and it would be healthy for you, the left would be anti-cheeseburger. They would say that cheeseburgers are... Uh, racist and evil and destroying the planet. So that's what we're up against here, folks. More national security. Come on up here in just a moment to talk to you about the troop drawdown in Syria and uh, the Vietnam-Kim Jong-un summit coming up.
1: You are now entering the Freedom Hot Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear.
0: Team Buck is cleared Roger that. and ready for the Buck Brief.
1: This is a, a rough estimate, about 200, not a specific number. Um, we're gonna we're in constant contact with our allies. At the end of the day, the president wants to bring our troops home, and he's working towards that. He wants to do that in a uh, safe and peaceful way. I'm always going to be happy with the president pulling our men and women in harm's way out of harm's way and also doing so responsibly. Uh, I agree. Uh, I believe that the 200 that are remaining will keep Turkey uh, out of the Syrian conflict, but will also keep Iran's ambitions at bay. So, Mr. President, you deserve a lot of credit for destroying the caliphate, but we need an insurance policy to make sure they don't come back. And the Kurds who helped us In the eyes of Turkey, the YPG Kurds are part of the PKK. We need a buffer zone between Turkey, and the Syrian democratic forces so they don't go to war. You don't want to end one war and start another. We want to make sure ISIS never comes back and Iran cannot get these oil fields that are in Syria. So by having a small US presence will attract a lot of Europeans. It's time for the Europeans to take the lead here and that's what this plan's about is to put them in
0: the lead with our help. News today that President Trump is going to keep 200 troops in Syria. Obviously that's a that's a small contingent. We have a much Larger contingent of a few thousand troops next door in Iraq. And keep in mind, given U.S. Uh, Navy and aerial assets that can be deployed in the Mediterranean, as well as other bases in the region, we, we have no shortage of ways to blow up stuff in Syria if we want to. All right. So that's that's one thing that I think often gets, you know, oh, if we don't have troops there, what are we going to do? Point at something on a map America in Syria and America can destroy it if we want to. It's not always a good thing for us to do it, but we we have that capability to keep this contingent of, of troops there. I understand the reasoning behind this, and I understand why a lot of people are favorable to it right now. We heard there from Lindsey Graham, John James. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders announced this today, and it's a slight shift in the president's. Well, it wasn't really a plan. It was a tweet from a few weeks back where he said, that we need to get out of Syria and get out of Syria as fast as possible. Here's, what, here's the, the argument for us to keep these troops in Syria, and then I'm going to make my argument as to why we need to get out of Syria. We need, we need to leave Syria. I think we can handle all of the different concerns uh, without a U.S. military presence in Syria because the presence that we have now may seem small and manageable and fine, when you have a small presence, the ability for that to become a large presence is very real. And the necessity for it to become a large presence under circumstances that are not far-fetched is also very real. Here's why they want us to have troops there. Number one reason that comes to mind, although I think if you speak to people on the military side, as I have recently, they'll say that the the, the biggest concern that they have is they don't want to abandon the Kurds who were fighting alongside us in Iraq. I'm sorry. Well, in Iraq, they've done the two in Syria and fought bravely and fought well against the psychopaths of the Islamic State. Okay, so and that's a real thing. And American honor, there are global implications for the, the honor that we either gain or lose in the treatment of battlefield allies. I don't mean allies that are like, hey, We're going to go to a Davos, uh, you know, a, a Davos forum and talk about how we're going to ally with you on climate change. I mean, Kurds and some of you who are listening to this show, I know for a fact, have been out there with them. So, you know what I'm talking about better than anybody else. I mean, Kurds who are on the front lines, taking incoming, laying down fire against our enemy alongside special U.S. Special Forces operators and alongside our guys. Those are allies real allies. And there's an, uh, an understandable uh, concern that if we weren't there, then the Turks would launch airstrikes against them because they think that they are essentially the same. The Turks believe that our Syrian allies, uh, Kurdish Syrian allies, and the Syrian democratic forces uh, in eastern Syria and eastern and northern Syria predominantly are the same as the pkk uh, marxist separatist terrorists that have been waging a 30 plus year struggle against the turkish government so the turks have a very big problem with them and and this i understand all this that's the one part of it the other part of it is the fear that the islamic state is going to make some kind of a major comeback if we're not there all right now so that's really the reason oh and then there's another set of reasons that i don't think are good reasons but there are people who say that we need to be there to counter iranian influence i think that's unrealistic and i think it's also a dangerous expansion of the mission set and the strategy that we're we're approaching all this with uh that we're there because we're going to try to broker a peace agreement with with assad i think that's misplaced i think that's just wrong it's not going to work it's not going to happen assad is not going anywhere He's not going to negotiate with the Syrian democratic forces for, you know, uh, for him stepping down or anything else. I mean, Syria is it was through a civil war and the country has been chopped up into pieces. Um, But there is this notion of, well, we need to counterbalance the other bad players, Russia, Iran, Assad, Hezbollah. I I don't I don't think that we should be getting to that game because they all already have troops on the ground there, forward operating bases. The Russians have had a naval base in uh, Tartus for, I don't know how many decades now, in Syria. So we're not counterbalancing how. Uh, then on the on the uh, way that we could do this without a true presence there, uh, meaning that we should scale down this 200 to essentially zero as soon as we can, that's my opinion, we use the all the different military assets that we have in the region if we need to to back up Kurdish fighters on the ground, the Syrian Democratic forces there. uh, And keep in mind, we could always have troops there that are non, you know, that that are not being reported on. Right. I mean, we could always have operations going on there that are not uh, being publicized quite the way what we're talking about. This contingent is advisors and so on and so forth. Um, But as as long as we have the military presence that we do in the region, We can give air cover, give material support. We can do whatever we want in the in this part of Syria. And I think we can accomplish it without a true presence there Um, in terms of the Turkish Kurdish. and, And that's necessary for the suppression of ISIS. Right. So this is people's worry about ISIS coming back. And to that, I say you're never going to completely eradicate the Islamic State. A lot of them have apparently moved into Iraq. Our foothold in Iraq is not as permanent as some people think. I think the Iraqis get restless with our presence there. Uh, so that's also worth keeping in mind. Uh, and that's not, a, that, that's not a reason to try to... Uh, you know. Right now, we think Syria is more... Uh, Syria, we can be in with troops because we're so stable in Iraq. Well, what happens if that gets upended? Uh, I wouldn't want to be that U.S. troop contingent in Syria if all of a sudden we have to pull out of Iraq. Uh, so there's that. And then there's also trying to keep the the turks out of the syrian conflict and out of airstrikes on our our kurdish friends in the syrian democratic forces and then I just say we got to make it clear to the turks that you know they're not going to keep being a nato country we're, we're not going to play ball with them and and help them out on things that matter to them if they are going to be spoilers and and refuse to respect some of our look it's a request it's an ask we can't make them uh, do this and we're, we're certainly not going to take any military action against the Turkish Turkish forces on behalf of Kurdish allies I think um, so then you get into do you really want U.S. troops to be a tripwire there for the, the Turks essentially the Turks won't bomb some of these encampments because they're, they don't want to kill American soldiers well uh, so you're going to keep American soldiers there in harm's way in the hopes the Turks don't do that I, I don't like that plan The biggest thing, though, for me, I mean, so I I try to work through some of the pieces there because it's obviously a very complicated situation. The biggest thing for me is we need to stop. Our leadership needs to stop thinking that the answer to problems abroad all the time is to send United States military forces to calm things down, to chill things out, to make problems go away. We don't need to do that. We should not do that. And I think that Syria is the beginning of the turning of the tide away from Iraq, which has not been successful. Okay, we can talk about Iraq as much as anybody wants. I was in the CIA's Iraq office for years. Iraq is not the success that we were promised, and it is not is not a particularly stable country. Um, It's okay, but Afghanistan, which we are losing. We are losing in Afghanistan. We are, going to, we are going to try to create some face-saving agreement with the Taliban where the Taliban is essentially left in control of the country or part of the country, and then eventually will be in control of half of the country. Uh, all the Pashtun parts of, of Afghanistan are going to be Taliban-run. It's just a matter of when. So that didn't work out for us. Uh, enough is enough. And I do think that there's a a class of elites in this country. And I mean that pretty specifically. I mean, I could actually name some of them, the Bill Kristol and Max Boot, you know, Tucker Carlson wrote an article about them recently where he referred to them as the uh, professional war peddlers. Uh, many of these Bush era, very muscular foreign policy neocon types. I-, I think that their ideas have largely been, or should be repudiated. I think that they've dragged us into conflicts that have, uh, been far too costly in terms of lives and in terms of uh, of so of, of blood and treasure for the united states and for what for what we should be putting our troops in harm's way when there is a clear u.s national security interest that we must defend and that we know we're going in hard and we're going in furiously we should not be leaving troops in places in unstable countries where the host government either doesn't want us or there is no host government really to speak of. We're, we're propping up a host government and, and hoping that we can cobble these countries together on our own. That's just, it's not good policy. It's not a good idea. And I think Syria is the, the turning of the tide. I think people are going to realize that Syria is a, a place where finally, We start to draw down, don't allow this to drag on forever, draw down the Syrian, uh, our contingent in Syria, and let this be someone else's problem if it's going to be a problem. I think that that's, now I I know there's there's a lot of good faith debate on this, there's a lot of ways you can take this argument, but the problem with, you know, it's never going to be easy to end an endless war. But the alternative is to keep fighting an endless war. Uh, I'm not saying it's risk free. I'm not saying there's no chance ISIS could come back. I'm saying we need to not make Syria our mission open ended for the foreseeable. It's a bad idea. We'll be right back.
1: We're making progress. The president's in no hurry, uh, particularly as long as things continue to move forward in a positive manner. And as long as the conversations continue to go well, um, again, we'll see what happens. I think that um, the only one setting high expectations is probably the media, because they're looking for reasons to attack this president.
0: So we have this uh, summit coming up in in Vietnam where. The, the the media is i mean that was sarah huckabee sanders setting it up properly uh the, the media is going to do everything they can to tell us that trump has failed with north korea so far and his summit is a bad idea this this one-on-one meeting in vietnam and uh you know he's a, a fool on foreign policy and this is going to be a disaster that's what they're going to say now um, I I don't believe that that is the case. Uh, I can't tell you what's going to happen quite yet because I'm obviously it hasn't happened. And I don't believe anybody can predict the future. Uh, here's what Lindsey Graham, uh, Lindsey Graham, his expectations for this. Lindsey Graham getting lot of play in the media these days. Play 14.
1: My expectations are to give up his nuclear weapons over time to convince him that he is better off without a nuclear Uh, arsenal than he is with one. His nuclear weapons could fall in the hands of people who would actually use them if he would not. The president is right to want this uh, transition from a nuclear North Korea to a non-nuclear North Korea. Chairman Kim's at the table because he's afraid of Trump. We broke the Iran nuclear agreement, which was putting Iran on a pathway to a nuclear weapon, and we destroyed the caliphate, and we got the Taliban at the table in Afghanistan. Why? Mm -hmm. We've been strong in the face of, uh, adversity. Donald Trump has been the opposite of Barack Obama. The reason the Taliban's at the table, Kim's at the table is Trump has shown strength. Now we got to close the deal.
0: I appreciate what Lindsey Graham is saying there. He's wrong on Afghanistan. That's, and, and anybody I know who knows Afghanistan well, and whose opinion is to respect, I got to tell you, we are not at the table in Afghanistan because we're doing so much better Obama raised the troop levels to over a hundred thousand there. Took the fight to the Taliban in Kandahar in Helmand. Did not, you know, yeah, our troops beat our troops beat their guys, but at the end of the day, we didn't stabilize the country. But back to North Korea here. So I just I have to know, Lindsey Graham, I think I think Lindsey Graham is wrong sometimes. It's not wrong on Kavanaugh, though. I love you for, forever for that one, Lindsey. Lindsey gets a big he gets a big uh, special pat on the back for that one. But uh, on North Korea, I, I can't say he's wrong. I don't think that Kim Jong-un will give up his nuclear weapons. I think that nuclear weapons are central to the belief system of the North Korean Communist Party. I, I think that nuclear the nuclear deterrent is really the reason for that and the reunification of the Korean Peninsula by force, by the way. That is why the North Korean regime exists. So it will not eliminate its reason for being. It will not give it up. I know that that, and you might ask me buck, where does that leave us? I don't know. But I don't think the North, I don't think that Kim Jong-un is going to give up their nukes. I just don't see it happening. That said, I think that Trump is right to try. And if I were him, I would certainly want to try because the alternative is pretty horrific down the line. Pretty Horrific. Um, he also hasn't given up anything in the process. This whole thing of, oh, by meeting with him, you legitimize him. He's the leader of North Korea. We can we can hold our breath and pretend he's not the leader of North Korea, but what, what good does that do? He is the leader of North Korea, and I think we do well to live in that reality. He has not fired off any missiles since Trump approached him with these overtures. I think that that's at least some version of progress here, and we'll have to see, but I'm I'm not going to blow smoke here. Do I think that North Korea is going to give up their nukes? No, I do not. I do not see that happening. And I think that Trump is going to make a very good faith effort to get there. We will see how it goes. But he doesn't lose anything by trying because he's kept all the sanctions in place. And he's not buying off the North Koreans like Obama bought off the Iranians. Got a really interesting idea to talk to you about in a moment here. What makes a good job and how do you make a job better? That's coming up. AARP is a big organization. People have heard about it. It's been around for a long time. But you know what people don't know about AARP? It's actually pretty left-wing. Supported Obamacare, used its sway and its access on Capitol Hill to push for the Affordable Care Act, and has stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners. That's why I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, AMAC is all about value for its members. That means discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, and it advocates for seniors with conservative policies that you agree with. They want to fix Social Security. They want to fix the border. They want to put us on a sustainable footing when it comes to government spending. This is the seniors organization for you. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. Join right now at amac.us/buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for America. What makes people happy? It's an existential question if one uh, ever existed, right? Why are we here? What are we trying to accomplish? Don't worry. I don't think that here on this radio show right now I'm going to be able to solve that. I know there are some hosts who'd be like, whoa, let me tell you, I know everything. No, I, I don't actually have all the answers i have a lot of them but i don't have all of them i read this piece though it was actually it was in the new york times i must i must admit i do read the times i read the enemy's publications don't think that you know i i leave that undone but the piece is called wealthy Uh, successful and miserable the future of work wealthy successful and miserable and it says that the uh, upper echelon it's by charles duhigg It says the upper echelon is hoarding money and privilege to a degree not seen in decades, but that doesn't seem to make them happy at work. And it just goes into a story about uh, a guy who went to Harvard Business School, graduated uh, in the early 2000s when there was a, a sense of just incredible optimism, hyper capitalism in America, so much wealth creation. And if you were on a certain track, if you went to these Ivy League schools and by the way, this is all, for those of you who don't care about any of that stuff, we'll, we'll get to what, this matters for all of us in a moment, but went to these fancy schools, you were on this pathway to extreme uh, wealth and happiness and access and freedom and all these great things. Well, this individual's written this piece about how he went to his Harvard MBA, uh, Harvard Business School reunion, his 15th reunion. He just went to it this past summer And what was so interesting is that here is this group of people who, if you were to segment off a a cohort of of individuals who have just been incredibly lucky to have graduated from Harvard Business School in America in the early 2000s, you you are in the one one millionth of one percent of humanity. I mean, you are super lucky. I mean, for all time in terms of the prospects that you have for for wealth, uh, for opportunity, and and just, but what's so interesting, and many of you know where this is going, is guess what? A lot of really unhappy people in his Harvard Business School class 15 years later, a lot of people who, despite what would be referred to as as privilege by many people on the left these days, despite this, what is true privilege, going to Harvard and Uh, the business school and graduating and getting all these big jobs. Uh, But there are people that are still miserable. He said that there were people who, quote, complained about jobs that were unfulfilling, tedious, or just plain bad. One classmate described having to invest $5 million a day, which didn't sound terrible until he explained that if he put only $4 million to work on Monday, he had to scramble to play $6 million on Tuesday. And his co-workers were constantly undermining one another in search of the next promotion. It was insanely stressful work done among people he didn't particularly like. He earned about $1.2 million a year and hated going to the office. I feel like I'm wasting my life, he told me. When I die, is anyone going to care that I earned an extra percentage point of return? My work feels totally meaningless. He recognized the incredible privilege of pay and status, but his anguish seemed genuine. If you spend 12 hours a day doing work you hate, at some point, it doesn't matter what your paycheck says, he told me. There's no magic salary at which a bad job becomes good. Now, I, I think this, this probably has, this probably really resonates with a lot of you listening. It resonates with me. And I, I you know, I certainly don't make $1.2 million a year. Uh, but the point is, that if you are spending a lot of your time doing something that you that you don't have a passion for you feel is meaningless it all it ceases to matter what they're paying you for it because this is your life this is your time this is what you are doing with yourself time is the one commodity that you cannot get more of and you can never get back so what do you do every day and this is why I think our society as much as I'm not somebody that goes on or, you know rails against a uh, materialism in American society, uh, it is a problem. It, it is a problem. I can tell you that I've had jobs, you know, the what, one of the most fulfilling and fun jobs I ever had was being a JV soccer coach, high school soccer coach, for my high school in uh, 2004. I was a JV soccer coach at Regis High School in New York City, and I think I was paid for the season... I forget. It might have been like twelve hundred dollars or something like that. It was in you know a twelve-week season, and maybe I, maybe it was two grand. I don't know. It was it was a little honorarium. It was not a salary, salary, um, but it was a great gig. I was doing another gig at the Council on Foreign Relations at the time. Council on Foreign Relations, the Illuminati, the Bilderbergs. But I, I was there, and and then I did the whole coaching thing, and coaching was great. And if I could make a living doing it, I would love to do it. But I, I, don't think I could have, and I also think that there were limitations on how good a coach I would have been able to. I would have been able to become, given that I wasn't a college or professional athlete myself, unless you count rowing, which is not really. You're not really an athlete. You're just a uh, a masochist who wants to ruin ruin your days. Um, but the point about wasting your life, no matter how much money you make, I think that really should matter to people. But it matters up to a point. You need there are all these different studies about happiness and about fulfillment. And you need a certain amount of money because I've also been in the position where you don't have money for things you need money for. You know, I have been in my late 20s when I realized um, I can't do, you know, I can't afford to have a surgery, for example, that a doctor has recommended I have. I I just don't have the money. Uh, So I know what that's like. That's stressful. You don't want that either. It's a, I think most of the studies I've seen say that, you know, your your relative happiness and, you know, up to 50 or 75 thousand dollars a year of income in America. You know, it, it's it, 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 making 70 instead of 60. You That feels good. You like that, you know, making 60 instead of 50, you know, making 50 and, and, and so on and so forth. But making, you know, 160 instead of 150, eh, it doesn't really matter that much. And once you can imagine you get up into the millions, it really doesn't matter that much to people. I mean, it's the work is the work. And if you hate what you're doing and you think it's meaningless, you can't get around that. And it was interesting that there are all these people that he goes through in this uh, in this article who have had the most on a resume basis on a, you know, looking at their uh, their pathway from an outsider's perspective. They've had this incredible run and they hate it. And they hate it. And overall, job satisfaction has gone down. In the mid 1980s, according to this piece, 61 percent of workers said that they were satisfied with their jobs. Since then, uh, as of 2010, 43 percent of workers are satisfied. That's a big, that's a big drop. Um, only 40 43 percent of workers are satisfied. Less than half. I think that there's a lot that drives this. Um, there, are, there are people that will point you to, to different things. You know, they'll, they'll point you to how you're always uh, here. He, he mentioned some in this article, uh, oppressive hours, political infighting, the competition created by globalization, the Internet and the always on culture. You carry your phone around. They can reach you. You carry your email around. They can reach you. Right. You've got that going on all the time. There's Something more more to this as well, though. Uh, I think that we are increasingly, as a society, people are seeing the financial wherewithal of those around them that they're seeing. You know, it's a keeping up with the Joneses thing. They see what other people do and what they can do, and they think to themselves, why don't I have that? Instead of thinking, do I have what I need and what I want? You know, and, and understanding that your own expectations are the only expectations that really matter for these things. But dissatisfaction, even for people who are very financially well off, is is pervasive. Now, I, I want to pause because I want to come back and say that there's some real upside. That there are two lessons that he gets into in this piece, which I will post on Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton so you can all see it. But there are these two lessons that he gets into um, that I think will really stick with. Because we're not going to talk anymore about, oh, the, the, the hedge fund manager who says his life is meaningless, but he's worth millions of dollars. You may find that interesting, you may not, but it's just a way of getting into this piece because there are other people who find their lives really interesting and really uh, have meaning, their work lives have meaning in a way that may be surprising to hear or probably be inspiring to hear. And then also the people that find work and find their roles that are the right ones for them, there's something very interesting that they all have in common or that many of them have in common. And it's not what you would expect. And I think that will also it's this article. I found this article inspiring, not the part I've told you about so far. But see, this is how we do radio teases. The part when we come back. Stay with me. When do you want to spot that burglar when he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him to burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, Blink video clips were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that last up to two years. And if you're traveling, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check in on pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. Blink camera systems make great gifts and they're a brilliant way to monitor your package deliveries. Visit blinkprotect.com slash buck. Blinkprotect.com slash buck. Again, blinkprotect.com slash buck. Protect those packages on your porch, my friends. Protect your whole family and all your possessions at home. Check out Blink. It's an Amazon company. So how do you manage to one have a fulfilling job and and to to find a fulfilling job and then to be fulfilling in that role, right? What do you, what are some of the lessons from this piece team uh, that was written in the New York times about how there are a lot of wealthy elite professionals who are really miserable with what they do, even though they're financially successful money. You need enough money to be happy. This is my, this is my role. This is not from the speech. You need enough money, but money doesn't make you happy. I've seen it tons of times. Uh, I've known people who are who are deeply unhappy. I've known people who were incredibly wealthy, who were like Trump level wealthy. Um, I've known you know children of of Trump's generation who are incredibly wealthy, and they were on all kinds of you know serious medication, or they were self medicating with drugs. And you'd say, how is that? Well, you know, your life is so easy. Why aren't you happy? Cause it's not enough. People need purpose, and one of the things I talk to you about is. And it's a lot of things that I say on this radio show are also ways to solidify my own thinking. And it's my own way of reminding myself, you know, how do you derive happiness and joy from your day to day? How are you making yourself better? How are you treating the people around you? How are you contributing in a way that is positive? Right? And, and and I don't get into the spiritual side of it as well. But I think when you're doing those things, you're also obviously serving Serving God and and being a good Christian, and you know th- these things all tie together, but a couple of things come up in this piece that really were noteworthy to me. One is uh, he cites this study about uh, again, this isn't this New York Times piece about a bunch of janitors, janitors who were working in a hospital, and some of them were incredibly happy with their jobs and their janitors now Janitors and I always and I say this and I mean this, you know, I I any work that you do that is is contributing and that is honorable and you receive a, receive a paycheck for is something that deserves respect. Uh, and janitors are certainly in that capacity. In fact, janitors in New York City, not to get into this, they make over 100 grand. So start with that. I know in New York City public schools, janitors make with overtime over one hundred thousand dollars. Let that one sit there for a second. It's a lot more money than I made in my first many years of work. Um But so janitors, though, in this one hospital, they love their job. Why? Because they didn't see their job, according to this study, as just tidying up in this hospital unit for people that were dealing with really serious brain injuries. A lot of the patients were actually in comas. The janitors, yes, they changed the bedpans, they picked up trash, but some of the janitors would move pictures around on the wall and and would try to leave things in the room looking looking particularly nice and make little changes because they believed quote a subtle stimulation in the unconscious patient's environment might speed their recovery one of the janitors also said quote i enjoy entertaining the patients That's not really part of my job description but i like putting on a show for them she would dance around tell jokes Tell jokes to families sitting, doing bedside vigils. She would try to cheer them up. She would try to distract them from the pain and uncertainty that surrounded them. That's right, janitors who are showing up at their job and doing a necessary job with just the usual janitorial stuff, but also view themselves as healers, view themselves as helpers. And for any of you who have ever been by a sick relative, you know, that that human decency and and human contact and and warmth and kindness even from strangers can really mean a lot so that's one part of this is that you know you can be a janitor which is great you can also be a janitor who views himself or or herself as someone who is is contributing beyond their role and that's where a lot of happiness comes from i'll tell you this in my high school there was a janitor named jimmy and anybody who's listening, that who went to my high school knows what I'm talking about. There was a janitor named Jimmy, and every single morning, when I was a, when I was a student at this high school, he would wait outside for. He was cleaning the street and and you know, tidying up and things. But he would, and every kid who walked into that school, he would high five on the way and say, "How you doing?" He high fived everybody who went in. And I'm gonna tell you, I had some days in that school where I wasn't particularly happy to be there. I was always happy to see Jimmy, and you always felt like. It's all right, I got Jimmy here, and he would give you a high five. Jimmy was a janitor. Jimmy was a lot more than a janitor, though. Not that just being a janitor is not enough, but he chose to make it more. We all can make that choice to be more. One other interesting lesson in this piece that I think really matters, really really struck a, a note with me, because I've had a non-traditional career, and I've had as many rejections and letdowns and shutdowns as, as as anybody could in media. Oh, maybe one day I'll tell you about all the people in media who should have hired me, who should have hired me, who didn't, who passed me over, who promised me. For, and I've only been doing this for about uh, nine years, eight, nine years now. And even before that, all the jobs I applied for that I didn't get or, you know, tons of that. What this one author says, though, is that when he found people who were really happy in their jobs, really happy, of, and, and, and they felt like they had a good job, not just because of the pay, a good job because they felt it was meaningful. They tended to be the people who had to struggle to figure out who they were and how they were gonna get there. That the people that went through these elite institutions and had these gold-plated resumes and went to the most esteemed institutions, they didn't really, they didn't really care that much about their jobs they get paid a lot, but it doesn't really feel like much to them. But the people who end up getting rejected and they fail and they have to, they have to find that avenue, that, that pathway for themselves, they, they have to be creative, they have to be entrepreneurial, they have to take risks, they have to try things that people that are handed or that earn, I'm not trying to say they're handed, but that earn their gold-plated opportunities through the systems in place would never take, too risky. Look, I, I got into and this is I got into some of the best business schools in the world, so the MBA program thing here really really struck a chord with me, and I said, you know what? I'm going to roll the dice on this media thing. If I had spent years at a hedge fund before that, would I have done that? Probably not. Now I do a job that I can honestly say, doing this radio show, I love my job, and I don't love all the things I do in media. This radio show, I love my job. It matters to me. This audience matters to me, and that is something that is really special and I recognize it as special and it was really hard to get here. But this notion that the struggle, the struggle to find that meaningful position for yourself, and by the way, it's not just professional. I think this is true of people's lives too. The struggle to find out who you are and what makes you happy is a necessary part of the process for most people. And I think I think at the end of the day, to embrace that that idea of, of fighting to get where you need to be, that there's going to be setbacks, that there are going to be problems, it's not all gonna be clear skies and wonderful sailing. Just know that if you stick to who you are and your values and you're resilient and you fight, you'll get to a place where you're happy, which doesn't mean we, all, we don't all get to be president, we all, don't all get to be professional athletes, but we can all be the best version of ourselves if we keep trying. That's what I took away from this. We can be the janitor who's helping to heal people with brain damage. We'll be right back. Ain't no party like a team buck party. Cause a team buck party don't stop.
1: Yeah, we got buck turned up to 11.
0: It's time for Roll Call. Doesn't that guy kind of sound like Optimus Prime? It's time for Roll Call. You know what I mean? Anybody? John, do you ever watch the Transformers?
1: Yeah, you I did years t- ago. Not the, not the new Michael Bay stuff, no.
0: All right, I mean, if we really if we really have to get into it, Transformers or Thundercats? I really like Thundercats, too.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I That, think that I go, would have to be my choice, Thundercats. I think I go Thundercats over Transformers, but I know we've just probably set the airwaves on fire. People are like, no, Transformers, Optimus Prime. And some of you are like, Buck, what are you talking about? Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Because it is a Friday and because I am uh, excited to get to the weekend, we're going to do a double roll call where we get to because I have so many messages in the inbox here that we have not gotten to from the week. So we'll try to get to a bunch of them. It's so easy. Just go to Facebook.com slash Buck and Send a message. Let me know what you think of the show. Things we've been working on. Come out to the coast. Have a few laughs. All that good stuff. All right. Seth writes, Buck, did you know the Wendy Walsh that advertises a podcast in between your segments is the same Wendy Walsh who accused O'Reilly of sexual harassment in 2017? What is she doing on your show? Even so, I'm enjoying your show as much as ever. From Seth. Um. Yeah, I, I I don't know what ads are running on some of them. I mean, I, there there are sponsors, my friend, and then there are radio ads that run on stations. So I don't I'm on one hundred and twenty five, six, something like that. One hundred and twenty some odd stations across the country. I do not know. So if you're if you're calling me or if you're going to send me a message because Bob's Waterbed in East Tallahassee is not getting it done for you. They're probably I, I don't I don't know. They're not a sponsor of mine. I I can't speak to Bob's Waterbed of East Tallahassee, so I, I don't, you know what I mean. Like this is, the local stations can do different things. Uh, the sponsors that I know, I know the CEOs, I know the companies, I use the products. That's a different uh, that's a different situation. So I can't speak to this. I, I I don't know who Wendy Walsh is. I don't know anything about what you're talking about, and I really don't. I'm not trying to be coy, uh, but yeah, ads they're a good thing. Capitalism. I love I love all sponsors for uh shows like this that are good shows brad writes dear buck with all the talk from democratic hopefuls about how great socialism is and how great it will be to stand in bread lines like the past days of the ussr i haven't heard one word on how they or any other politician plans to tackle our raising uh or our rising rather national debt crisis at what point are they going to realize the spend 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 mentality is killing our economy and our nation I hate to sound like an alarmist, but the hens are going to come back to roost someday. Uh, But there's a fox in the hen house waiting for them. Uh, Would you like your I would like your thoughts on this and what we can do to help this great nation of ours before it's too late. Have a great weekend. Shields high. Uh, Brad, you're you're correct. I mean, you're right. Uh, The spending is out of control. And, and when I people would argue, oh, it's not out of control. Like, well, it's about a trillion dollars this year, close to a trillion dollars this year, uh, or I should say for the last fiscal year. We're $22 trillion in debt. And th- this much is, is for sure. When a financial crisis of that magnitude, that is that structural and foundational, when it is clear to anybody who's paying attention that it's a really, really big problem and it has to be dealt with, uh, it's too late now the problem we have in this country and remember i came into media i left the cia and came into media at the time of the rise of the tea party so i remember when conservatives were very much concerned with the debt and the deficit and this was a major national issue that issue has only gotten worse my friends and i and i do think that there's a disconnect here between the recognition of national debt as a structural and strategic, not just economic, but national security threat as well. My friends, if, if our economy starts to crap out, guess what? You think that China becomes more or less emboldened? You think that other enemies around the world are more or less likely to move against us in all kinds of ways? So I think that's a very, uh, that's a look, your, your point is very well taken. And you're not an alarmist. You're correct. I I bring it up here on the show, but... You know, it's tough. I discuss issues. I, I compared to other radio shows that I don't listen to often, but I've listened to enough to know. I try to cover I try to cover as much as I can in terms of subject matter. A lot of people just go either all in on how much they love Trump or all in on how much they hate Trump. And that's a successful on radio, it's mostly how much they love Trump. And that's a successful business model for them. And I am a capitalist, so I can appreciate that. Uh, but I know that I, I feel like when I talk about the debt, people just it's not in the zeitgeist right now. It, it's twenty two trillion dollars. You know, m- maybe it is worth it. Maybe this is the show. And I have, as you know, I, I've worked with Stansbury Research with uh, with Porter Stansbury. He's a brilliant financial mind. His whole team, incredibly brilliant guys. They know I mean, they'll tell you they publish on this that we are heading for a, an economic uh, and financial calamity uh so you know the, the, and, and so i can leverage their research and their knowledge and i'm just telling you it's coming but i feel like you know people there's so much that i want to talk to this audience about and and i don't want to go to, too deep on a subject or hit a subject too often that people just you know for whatever reason they don't really want to hear about it but maybe maybe that should change here maybe we Get it going. And, and I am here in D.C. in the swamp. I have a lot of swamp contacts. I have friends in the White House. I mean, you know, it, I, I can get word up the chain, but the politics of this are it is popular to spend money on the stuff that you want to spend money on. You know, that's that's the reality. It is popular to spend money on stuff. And, and it's unpopular to say, let's raise the retirement age. Let's have means testing for Social Security. Let's, you know, uh, change Medicare so there's more cost saving. You know, all, all this, all this stuff. No one wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. Even my own, even my generation, the generation below me, who are the ones that are going to be saddled with those debts. Anyway, as you can tell, I, I've been, Brad, you, you touched the nerve here because I've been rambling on about your question about the debt for some time. But I have not forgotten uh, the Tea Party movement and what it stood for and th- the the truth of the message and they were right. They were right. They won't necessarily they weren't necessarily right within you know, eight years, but on a longer horizon, they are correct. It is a mathematical certainty and if the U.S. all of a sudden runs into a debt crisis where people no longer believe that we can pay our obligations, we lose our reserve currency status, we are in a world of hurt. Okay, I must move on. I cannot keep Drilling down into this. David writes, the Buckman, which is indeed my legal name. Buck, well, the, you don't have to, but Buckman. Shields high. Podcast listener, love the show. I really appreciated your segment last night and how fundamentalist Islam is by far a more immediate threat to this nation than white nationalists. Are there any civilian accessible resources for those kind of statistics and numbers anywhere or that you specifically recommend? Uh, Well, Dave, the FBI stats are a good place to start. I will just tell you, though, you have to read into the stats. For example, you look at hate crimes and you see, and this isn't about radical Islam or, or white nationalist terrorism, but you look at the hate crime statistics and you'll see, wow, 8,000 hate crimes. That's that's more than you probably would have guessed, right? There are 8,000 hate crimes a year. But then when it does the breakdown, something like 20 to 25 percent of them are uh, essentially comments, comments, uh, and then another 15 or 20%, I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm forgetting the specific numbers, but uh, vandalism, so it's comments, vandalism, and simple assault. And assault does not necessarily include a physical assault, right? So, and, and that's a huge portion of them. So the number, when you really get down to it, is a lot less. Um, and, then, and if you're talking about hate crimes that end in a murder, now you're fortunately, thankfully, for this country, but the, the number's actually quite small. But when people think hate crimes, they don't think somebody scrawled a swastika on, you know, a, a cemetery in some small town somewhere. That's usually not what they're thinking. And, and that is counted as a hate crime. They're thinking, you know, someone is is brutally attacked because they're gay or somebody is is attacked by uh, racists who don't like somebody, you know, who are hateful towards somebody because they're black. I mean, that's what hate crime makes you think of, right? And and those are obviously heinous. Hate crime is not usually what you think of when you're talking about somebody who takes a roll of toilet paper and makes a swastika in a dorm on the floor, probably late at night, to be an idiot. That was a real thing, by the way. That was, that, that was investigated as a hate. I remember there was a hate crime at Georgetown University many years ago where a guy who was, um, and I might get some of the details wrong here because this was, I don't know, over maybe maybe almost 20 years ago now. A guy uh, grabbed a menorah and uh, and just like ran across campus with a menorah in his hand and he was really drunk. And they thought that, and I think he dropped it when they were chasing him and so it was a hate crime. I mean, you know, there's a big variation of hate crime so you have to look into the statistics and you'll see what I mean. Same with terrorism terrorism, and this is why I got on this rant, terrorism, for example, can cover eco-terrorists who let a few ferrets out of their cages at a testing facility. Well, okay, that's not good. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you shouldn't, that's property, and what's going to happen to the, well, I guess the ferrets are better off not being tested on, but you get what I'm saying. But when you think of ideological terrorism, you're thinking of murder, bombing attempts, you know, assassinations. You're not thinking of Lighting an SUV on fire somewhere or uh, engaging in some form of of hateful, um, you know, hateful conduct. That's usually what we think of as terrorism. All right. I'm going to uh, let our wonderful sponsors get a word in here for just a moment. And when we come back, we'll finish up Roll Call and I'll send you off on a fantastic weekend. All right. Back with part two, part two of Roll Call Whenever I think of Part Deux, I think of Hot Shots Part Deux. Man, Charlie Sheen. I remember when Charlie Sheen was really like in his heyday. Wall Street is one of the movies I've seen as many as any other movie in existence. And now Charlie Sheen, what a what a fall from, I don't know if it was from Grace, but just what a fall that guy's had. All right, Max writes, Hi, Buck. Could you explain to me something I'm confused about with the investigations into Trump? I assume the government can't legally investigate someone for purely political reasons. What is required to open a criminal versus counterintelligence versus congressional investigation? What is needed in these cases to issue a subpoena? Since you've worked in law enforcement, the CIA, and as a journalist covering politics, I figured you are unusually qualified to explain this. Well, Max, thank you, and I think that is correct. I am more qualified than certainly about 95% of the pundits and journos out there on this matter. And what I can tell you is that we are now seeing that the the um, bar for a counterintelligence investigation is actually very low. Um, that it's really up to the discretion of the people in positions of authority at places like the FBI, and if they want to push for a counterintelligence investigation, they can do it. You know, they can get a counter. There were reports in ABC. Uh, News from months ago, and it's resurfaced recently that the FBI opened up a counterintelligence probe into Jeff Sessions Now that hasn't been confirmed, but that was the ABC News report Jeff Sessions folks for being a Russian a Russian agent if You think that Jeff Sessions is a Russian agent. You are not smart I don't care what title you have. I don't care how many years on the job you have at the FBI. If you think, and let me also say this, people say, oh, Buck, you haven't seen the evidence. Oh, if there was evidence that would make the investigation of Jeff Sessions as a Russian asset not seem crazy, trust me, you would know about it. Trust me, that would have been leaked. So, Max, the answer to your question is that there's there's a whole bunch of specific standards for a criminal, versus, a criminal versus counterintelligence versus congressional investigation, you get into reasonable suspicion and probable cause, and there are terms of art that apply here. Um, but for counterintelligence specifically, it's really up to the discretion of the people at the FBI, at the DOJ. It is a discretionary issue. And remember, not only is there discretion involved, they also can hide the information, they can hide the investigation as classified from the public, so there's almost no accountability for counterintelligence investigations, almost none which is why we've also seen people bring up oh the FISA court, the FISA court authorized these investigations of Carter Page, that I always want to say okay, so what? Anybody who thinks that Carter Page is a Russian asset is also a moron an absolute moron, and you see them, they go on TV, they think they're so smart they are not Alan writes, Buck, you were spot on regarding Jussie Smollett. Thank you, Alan. I'm glad. It's nice to get a little credit for it. I doubt if any of the MSM or celebs who commented early on will apologize. My big question is, where is Jussie getting the money to pay for all his lawyers and his crisis management teams? He doesn't have a lot of personal wealth. Any ideas? Uh, Alan, I I don't know. I don't know what his personal wealth is. I do know that, that for some people, there's probably just a, a uh, professional incentive to be a part of the Jussie team in some way. Um, and he was making, from what I saw, you know, close to a million dollars a year on that show. And I'm sure he does some other things here and there. So, I mean, he's got some resources. This guy's not poor. Uh, he's got a lot more money than I do. So, you know, I'm sure he can manage to uh, pay some lawyers for a bit, but we'll see. Brittany writes, can you recommend some books on American history Nothing too dry, please. Well, Brittany, uh, I would also recommend that you—you you know what—I will—I I will post your—I um, will post your ask on the Facebook page, and so other people on the team can weigh in as well. Because we have so many astute—I mean, there are a lot of people listening to the show who are deeper on—I'm just gonna bit it—deeper on American history than I am. I mean, they really get into, especially certain periods. Civil War. Um, I like the Revolutionary Period a lot. That one I'm pretty good on, but my Civil War knowledge, everybody thinks they're a World War II expert. Very few people actually are, but I'm pretty good on World War II and World War I. Uh, If you're looking for a book on American history, uh, here's one, American Caesar by William Manchester. It's about Douglas MacArthur. It's a phenomenal book, phenomenal book, and really will tell you some interesting stuff about the Second World War. So my pick for this week would be American Caesar, by William Manchester, professor emeritus at Wesleyan University. I think he died. Also has a great two biography or two um volume biography of Churchill that I'd recommend to you. But try American Caesar, let me know what you think. That's it for today's show, team. Have a fantastic weekend. Shields high.